And welcome to Father Spitzer's Universe. This year's new edition at the intersection of faith and reason 2023. I am Doug Keck, still here guarding the gate, as they say, in the entrance to Father Spitzer's Universe, where you can enter through the television program and also by emailing us at spitzersuniversityw10.com. Check out all the Father Spitzer's websites. There's the Magis Center. Dot com and IncredibleCatholic.com and PurposefulUniverse.com for all those who've forgotten over the wonderful Christmas holidays. And Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and our on-demand page as well. And while at our on-demand page on our website, be sure to check out In Defense of the Eucharist with Father Wade Menesis. Everybody loves Father Wade. Check it out for free on-demand experience. So many of our programs are available there. And our topic today, we'll continue talking about envy rolling into pride. They're all related, as Father will explain. And from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, is what we're still working our way through. Naturally available through our religious catalog. You know, the book of the month for January from EWTN is by our friend Bishop Robert J. Baker, the former bishop here in Birmingham. Prayers of Desperation. A question is prayer for answers in our darkest moments. And as we turn now to Father Spitzer and rejoin him at the beginning of the year, it's, it's a little bit of a dark moment because of the passing of the great uh, Pope yeah. Emeritus Benedict, right? Absolutely. And uh, what a life he had and what a great papacy as well. And we Absolutely. can speak about it in a moment. And in the name of the Father and of the Son <clears throat> and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks <clears throat> for the life and the papacy of this great man uh, who I believe will soon be a saint and uh, certainly a saint in, in your eyes. I, I ask, uh, Lord, that this church of ours will take the initiatives that he tried to um, make um, uh, into a, a movement for the new evangelization and bring them into reality. Please today send your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for Amen. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yes, absolutely. Obviously, the passing of... Uh, um, Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth, and, and one of the things that's interesting, and I wanted to spend some time getting some of your insights and reflections, um, you know, uh, about mm -hmm. someone who probably many people think should ultimately be not only a saint but a doctor of the church. What say you? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I've never seen anyone quite like Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict, who came out. And first of all, he looked at the problems of our time, right? And the problems of our time, uh, I, I'd like to scream it from the yard arm here, the problem of our time is moral relativism and the tremendous loss of faith, particularly in Europe, which is spreading throughout the United States and the world. Mm. I mean, this is, this is the problem, and not only for the church, it's the problem for culture, and it's the problem for the world. Yes, uh, there are other surely great social problems out there, but Pope Benedict, when he, during his papacy, 
prophecy. He went straight on with that initiative that um, uh, St. John Paul II tried to get, to get going, the new evangelization movement, and he just kept striking out against moral relativism, kept striking out against scientism and rationalism, kept striking out against this sort of, you know, materialism that was taking, physicalism that was taking over the, uh, the culture and uh, really just not only tried to bring back the, the mystery of God, but um, uh, honestly tried to bring back the, uh, um, the rationality uh, of God mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, back into the church, the rationality of Jesus Christ, not neglecting the heart, but the rational foundations mm -hmm. of our faith, and then on top of it, just constantly hitting on the moral relativism which is taking over the culture and and saying truthfully accommodation isn't going to work as we've seen in germany right as you know thousands and thousands of young people continue to leave in droves right. uh, from the ter german church the more they accommodate to the mm -hmm. culture the more the the, the 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 young people seem to leave well why hey do you, think, why you know do you what's think, the definition well, of insanity yeah well why do you think why do you think that is because so many people over the years and certainly I would say it's fairly true since the 60s on this idea that we you know we need to be more accommodating and 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 people thought well if we do this and we open the windows and all these people rush in and feel very open and they'll feel much more comfortable but it seems like like you said that it works the opposite why do you think that is because deep in every single person's heart is the awareness of the fact that truth Right, it is going to come uh, oftentimes with the good, and that the good is going to come with what the Creator has not only revealed in the natural world around us, but is also built into the natural world around us, the biological world, the physical world. But not only that, what the tr the Creator has revealed through His Son Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So, if you, we start looking at this uh, very, very. Um, um, you know, seriously, mm -hmm. it is so obvious that people know in their conscience, they know in their hearts, they know by just looking around them as Paul, as St. Paul tells us in this kind of, you know, natural access that we all have mm -hmm. uh, to a vision of something bigger than ourselves, a creator bigger than ourselves that we know of. We know that the truth isn't in accommodation, that the truth is not in, ah, do whatever you want, nothing's going to happen to you in the mm -hmm. end anyway. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, you know, as, as uh, one fellow used to tell me in this, uh, you know, euthanasia debate, it all, you know, it doesn't really matter. We both believe in love, and I you have mm -hmm. to tell them, no, Ralph, it all depends on what you mean by love, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the, the idea is it doesn't matter, and we know in our heart of hearts it does matter. It does matter what you mean by love. It does matter what you mean by the good. It does matter whether you see the Creator as the mystery that's beyond yourself, which fashioned you in His very image and likeness, but not as an equal with the Creator. And so, at the same time, we know this in our hearts. But you know, sometimes you know, people will take this to the rational extreme, as I did when I was younger. I wanted a proof for everything before I sort of got back into my Catholic faith in a much more rigorous way. But uh, the point is, is God has given us all the evidence, not only in our hearts. 
He's given us all the evidence we can assemble from the physical universe, the biological universe. All we got to do, as St. Paul says, is look around. And the truth is patently obvious. And of course, if we look hard mm -hmm. enough, who are we going to see at the very head of everything? Jesus Christ. As interpreted by the Catholic Church, that's who we're going to see there leading the charge of what it means to love. Right. and what it means to pursue the good, and what our consciences are seeing in all of their, their nuance. And I, I don't think anybody's fooled. And so a church that comes out and just accommodates itself to quote unquote whatever, right? right? You know, if we accommodate ourselves to that, at the end of the day, people go, well, what's the point of that place? Right. It's worthless right. anyway. And then, and, you know, I mean, I think uh, they, they know, people know, right, and right. so of course they leave in droves. We've become as irrelevant as we have been accommodating. And right. unfortunately, um, we're finally, right. I guess a few people are beginning to see it, but not the German bishops. I mean, they, they just continue to roll on as usual. Well, well would you and, say uh, that, uh, speaking of one of the topics in your book, is their failure to see that a function of pride? Well, I, I think it's, you know, they believe in the cultural philosophy mm -hmm. that the nicer you are, the more that people will uh, respect you and, mm -hmm. and join your quote-unquote group. But uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think that's the case. I think the more people think that you are speaking the truth, the more that people believe that you really represent the good in itself independently of your self-interest, mm -hmm. the more they're going to join your group. And so I think, you know, yes, sometimes you look at the early Christian church and you go, why on earth would in droves people have joined the Christian church when it was being persecuted, mm -hmm. you know, one persecution after the next, going all the way up to the time of Diocletian and, and, and basically Constantine. Why? Why, you know, the church of martyrs, would, why would that be growing exponentially? Because they thought that it was the truth. The Holy Spirit told them that it was the truth. Oh yes, the Christians did help to accommodate uh, education beyond their community uh, in, in the public sphere of Rome. Yes, the Christians educated slaves and gave them an upper, you know, a, a lift up. And yes, the Christians had a huge public welfare system uh, as well. And yes, they also had a very good public health mm -hmm. uh, um, system to serve the, the, the needs of, of the sick. But at the same time, that wasn't the reason people joined. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to join to get services. The right. reason they joined was they said, that's truth. That's the good. That's the creator I know in my heart. And that's why right. in the midst of all the challenges, the martyrdom, the sickness, they joined. And today, right. this pure accommodationist viewpoint, you know, just give them what they want, right. and they'll, you know, listen, you give them what they want, um, and they'll know you're just as false as, as, well, as the day is long. You become Laodicea, yeah. right? Anyway. I mean, you become the, the yeah. lukewarm, and what do people yeah. do? They spit you out. Yeah, they spit you out, yeah, and right. it's Absolutely. true. Right. I mean, you could just see it. What's the definition of insanity anyway? Right. Doing the same thing again and again and again and expecting a different result. Right. Well, I think that's, uh, shouldn't just blame the German bishops. There's plenty of bishops right. besides the German bishops that are kind of going with the accommodationist view and uh, right. let it go at that.
Okay. Uh, a couple of quotes of different things. Uh, in, in fact, uh, when he had passed away, uh, Catholic League uh, put out a, a, a statement, uh, and they said, and I thought, in, in 2005, the day before Ratzinger assumed his duties as pontiff, and we all remember this, I think, he addressed the cardinals in Rome. He spoke about the doctrine of relativism. The popular and pernicious notion yeah. that there are no moral absolutes and no moral hierarchy of virtues. In the same historic Good Friday homily, he unloaded on abusive priests how much filth there is in the church, even among those who are in the priesthood and ought to belong entirely to God. Uh, and of course, uh, he went after that, and obviously, we saw what he was talking about in subsequent periods of time. Yeah. He also makes the Absolutely. point here that I think that was good because sometimes Benedict is attacked for not dealing with the priest problem strongly enough, but he points out that Benedict's critics were often inaccurate and unfair. Laurie Goodstein of the New York Times wrote in 2013 that Benedict never removed predators from the priesthood. She was wrong. All total from 2013 to 2005, 2005 to 2013, he defrocked more than 800 molesting priests. Hate to see that number, but it shows that he was taking action. Absolutely, he was taking action. And of course, he's also blamed for, you know, uh, turning a kind of a deaf ear to uh, social justice or the needs of the poor. I mean, anybody who took just a cursory glance mm -hmm. at Deus Caritas Est or Caritas in Veritate, I mean, you can't read those encyclicals and say he was turning a deaf ear to the poor. I mean, uh, or a blind eye to the poor. I mean, there's just no possibility uh, that he uh, was. He was very, very concerned uh, with those issues, but he knew the priority. We don't have faith and we don't have a notion of moral absolutes, right? If, if faith in Jesus Christ is just, you know, waning away and in, in, in the same thing with the moral absolutes, then the culture is, is gone, not just the church. The culture is gone too. So uh, yes, you can say I'm, I'm going to be really, really good and I'm going to keep all these social programs going. But if the spirit of human beings, the spirit of individuals, the spirit of the culture dies mm -hmm. and you're just kind of feeding along the body, what you can expect is the kind of chaos you get during World War II. The chaos you get when a spirit is just dead. But of course, there's plenty of economy to make war. There's plenty of time and creativity and genius to make war. And you look at that, right. and I mean, that, what a devastating uh, you know, thing that, that uh, is there. And I just think mm -hmm. Benedict was so wise, so sharp to see it. Faith and morals first, uh, you know, and then, mm -hmm. you know, let us get to the, uh, to the platform. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to neglect social justice in any way, shape, or form. Absolutely. I just know that faith and morals is a priority, and if we don't have that, the spirit of the world is dead. The mm -hmm. spirit of culture is dead, and the spirit of each and every one of us is dead unless we can find the resources, the inner resources from within us to kind of reach out and right. grasp well, we um, move out you know, of, what Jesus Christ right. was revealing. We move out of social, social justice to some sort of either socialism or sociology, one of the two kind of is where we find ourselves. Or woke culture, which right. of course, uh, you know, gives lip service to a lot of things, but turns out to be in its own way uh, mm. a kind of tyranny too. Right. So I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, it's you know, we, we really do need 
moral absolutes. I mean, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, who's right and who's wrong, and we have no basis uh, for what right and wrong, uh, you know, within a metaphysics mm -hmm. of morals. I mean, let's face it, we don't have a metaphysics of morals. We don't even know in our culture what a metaphysics of morals is, what the basis of morality and the good versus evil is. You know, I mean, that's why I wrote those three books, you know, Christ versus Satan, right. Escape from Evil's Darkness, and The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. I mean, um, Get, get back our metaphysics. And our Holy Father wrote those, wonder, those three wonderful books on Jesus as well. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, talk about uh, the... He wrote 66 books, mm -hmm. three encyclicals, and four apostolic exhortations. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, this guy was a genius. Mm -hmm. But the best part about Pope Benedict was that he wasn't just a genius in the sense of the mind. Obviously, he had a terrific mind, but he was a genius in the sense of his heart. Mm -hmm. He had a very, very gentle disposition. He also had, you know, people think, oh, he was this taskmaster. He was the guy who was, you know, uh, head of the doctrine of the faith. He was, you know, he was the, the heavy who came down on people and so forth and so on. I just don't think mm. they actually had any idea who Pope Benedict was in his heart. I remember I had the same impression when I was just a young theology student at the Gregorian. I used to go over with my friend Gottfried Kuster to the Teutonicum for mm. lunch occasionally. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, when first time I went over there, uh, there was Cardinal Ratzinger, mm. you know, and he beckoned us over to his table. I said, oh my gosh, God, Godfrey, let's not do that. I said, I couldn't make five, her you know, commit five uh, heretical statements within the first five minutes. I said, uh, you know, and he'll know every last one of them. And, and he goes, oh no, no, he's not like that at all. And he turned out he was the most gracious, kind mm -hmm. person right. to the point that after about the second time I had lunch with him, you know, it, you know, I actually looked forward to it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, because he was just such a, you know, good, open, a very convivial, congenial person. And, and so, anyway, I, I just have very right. good memories of him. Uh, but more than that, uh, you know, like I said, he had a great heart and, right. and he integrated the two very, very well. So, yes, uh, in fact, you know, uh, it was uh, not an a article. Tyrant. Right, absolutely. And George uh, Weigel uh, wrote an article uh, for the Register uh -huh. called The Real Ratzinger. And he goes out to point that the cartoon Ratzinger mm -hmm. was a grim, relentless, ecclesiastical inquisitor enforcer, God's Rottweiler. Remember yeah. all of these things. He said, the man I knew yeah. was a consummate gentleman with a gentle soul, a shy man who nonetheless had a robust sense of humor, um, a Mozart lover who was fundamentally happy person, not a sour crank. Said the cartoon Ratzinger was incapable of understanding word. or appreciating modern thought. The Ratzinger I knew was arguably incredible learned man of the world uh, with an encyclopedic knowledge of Christian theology, ancient, medieval, and modern, biblical studies, political theory. His mind was luminous and ordinary, and orderly, I should say, not ordinary. And when asked a question, he would answer in complete paragraphs in his third or fourth language. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Yeah, I mean, he didn't lack for the gray cells. Right. But, like I said, he didn't lack for the heart cells either. Right. He was just wonderful, a wonderful combination. And uh, as, uh, as he said, a gentle spirit. That describes Pope Benedict. Right, absolutely. And he talks about the key to a tr uh, understanding Joseph Ratzinger and his greatness was the death of his love for the Lord Jesus. In fact, it got reported uh, yeah. through uh, Archbishop Ganschwein 
that his, his final line was, Lord, I love you, before he died. Yeah. His final words, right? I would not, yeah, that's it. What else matters? I, I love you. Yeah, exactly. Right, and just I, like... I, I totally agree. Right. And, and there's only a couple of, uh, you know, delegations. I think the Germans and the Italians have official delegations, not because he's, he couldn't be honored, but because he didn't want to be honored that way. He wanted his whole funeral to be very simple. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. He was humble as well. And uh, people say, oh, you know, he wore papal garb, you know. That. So it, he wore that because that was what was expected of him. Uh, in a role that he had as uh, not only as uh, you know the, the the high teacher but also uh, the highest juridical uh, person in the Catholic Church empowered by Christ through the Holy Spirit that's uh, why he you know he, the idea that he was really enamored of clothes or right, enamored right, right. of what vehicle he the rode red, in the, the is red absolutely shoes. hilarious remember that the red yeah, shoes the red shoes, red shoes we'd have here constantly criticized yeah, yeah, red shoes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It just, just, just not even close to his personality. So, uh, you know, there, you know, you know, the idea that uh, that he was some kind of a, you know, I don't know, some sort of a, a you know, a, throwback a, to some medieval you know, uh, aristocratic pope, uh, exactly. <laughs> Bavarian count exactly. or something, right? Yeah, right, yeah, right. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another person uh, who we all know, Dr. Scott Hahn, talked about the importance of, yeah. of, of Ratzinger and Benedict in his life. He said, it's clear that no pope in over a millennium could match Benedict's knowledge of scripture and theology. Just as the theology of the body represents the theological legacy of Pope St. John Paul II, so Benedict's biblical mm -hmm. theology of Christ will be an essential part of Benedict's lasting legacy for future generations. I think that's true. I think he was very biblically grounded. Uh, of course, uh, we know he was also very philosophically sophisticated uh, and uh, very philosophically grounded. I read uh, many of his early articles as well as his uh, later articles. Of course, the transition uh, that he went through is mm -hmm. oftentimes greatly exaggerated, but his early uh, articles were uh, truly excellent as mm -hmm. he tried to piece together right the you know the philosophical foundations uh not only um for uh, uh for god or mm -hmm. the philosophical foundations uh for the intelligibility uh, of of being but he also uh, saw greatly how jesus christ encompassed the entirety of it all and translated it as i've put it before mm -hmm. into the language of the heart the language of love which is why he never forgot to put the two together Right, so when he calls his encyclical caritas, love, right, mm -hmm. in veritate, in the truth, I mean, it's pretty clear that here he is. It's like his life's ambition was to put together with the primacy of love, mm -hmm. the primacy of the heart, but without truth, it can go every which way and be a very destructive force, mm -hmm. but in the truth, Caritas turns into the most powerful force, the power of God, the power of the Spirit himself. Right. So uh, that was his legacy, and he wanted to say it, uh, no uncertain terms. And like I said, who else has gone so forcefully against 
the secularization of the world, against this new kind of scientism slash atheism. Who has gone against moral relativism more than Pope Benedict? I just ask you, who, you know, I mean, he got out there, he found the priority, and he just set it straight. And uh, he wasn't about to, you know, you know, peel away from it or in some kind of accommodating uh, mood. He was very, very, very much a, a confronter right. of the reality of a falsity that was utterly destructive to the world. Well, falls back to, I guess, the words of St. Paul, the idea of speaking the truth in love, uh, that, that we need those yeah. two things to go exactly. together all the time. We don't just, you know, yeah. act like we're going to tell people yeah. what they feel like because we, we think it's more loving to do that. It's yeah. never, you wouldn't do that with your kids. Yeah. So why would the Holy Father oh, yeah. do that with his, the, uh, you know, his spiritual children? His I lambs, agree. right? Exactly. Yeah. Also, Dr. Yeah. Regis Martin, uh, a professor over theology at Franciscan, uh -huh. said one, that he saw Ratzinger as his utter fearlessness in defending the faith that has come to us from the apostles. And second, he was to two things. That was the first thing about him. Second thing, complete childlike docility and submitting his entire life to the gospel. The, God himself had come among us to reveal those those two factors as you mentioned before too. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, he definitely had uh, the humility, the gentleness, and the submission, the subordination of himself to God uh, that, that really marks not only wisdom, but marks the path of Jesus Christ uh, to the love of his Father. And, and uh, Benedict really appropriated it, uh, not only in his mind, but mm -hmm. in his heart, in his spiritual life. And uh, he did actually have a very, very uh, profound spiritual life, mm -hmm. which, of course, as Gottschwein said, uh, you know, this is mm -hmm. what uh, uh, marked his last words. You know, Lord, I right. love you. Right. You know, what else can there be? Absolutely. Yeah. Let me ask you, since we're, we, you were talking about the 66 books, and so of all of yeah. his writings, what would you say is the one that impacted your priesthood the most? Well, um, uh, uh, my priesthood, well, I mean, um, you know, I have to say that two, uh, he did a set of articles, uh, you know, on the interpretation of Scripture, mm -hmm. which were very important uh, to me because, you know, when, when I was just still younger, I was struggling with, you know, well, how, you know, how could you have some of these statements in the Old Testament, like you got to kill everybody in town, right? Uh, uh, and right. and uh, you know, get anybody who fights us, you know, they got to die, man, woman, and child. And of course, I would just, you know, ah, you know, how can this possibly be reconciled? And then, you know, when I read his whole elaboration of how to read scripture in this regard. What was the outer surface that was part of the culture that was susceptible to change? What was the inner core of the tradition, you know, that, that could not be changed, that was part of God's constant revelatory fact, and how you distinguish between the two. And even as I'm backing up into the wall and I'm going, but ultimately, you know, what theologian can do this? You know, and, and of course, I'm thinking to myself, it, it can't just be some really smart guy because he could operate in his own advantage and it couldn't be just a, a, a you know a, a guy who had super knowledge of scripture because of course he might not have any knowledge of spiritual life or any contact with God in person or so forth and so I mean who ultimately can do this and of course at the end Pope Benedict says well it's the magisterium 
that was, you know, of course Christ saw this problem, mm -hmm. and of course Christ gave us uh, the magisterial authority of the church whose, um, you know, uh, apex is in uh, St. Peter himself mm -hmm. and those who hold the office of St. Peter. Mm -hmm. And you look through the years and you go, yeah. I mean, if it weren't for that, and we were really biblical literalists, not only would we have millions upon millions of churches, right, for each, you know, interpretation of Scripture, but I mean, can you imagine reading these things and still thinking that they had the same relevance today as they um, did before Jesus Christ? You know, that uh, kill every man, woman, and child, or, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, oh, if it comes down to, you know, uh, uh, you know, here's his, you know, father, and he says, you know, well, I'm so glad for this victory. I, I guess, you know, the next person who comes through the tenth, I'll just sacrifice it. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do we really want to say that that's what God wants today? Of course, we don't want to say anything like that. That the morality develops, and and there's a way actually to to tell what's the core and right. what's the outer surface that's merely culturally relative. And you know, Pope Benedict lays out this thing so well. Uh, in a series actually of articles as well as a, a couple of books mm -hmm. that were in German. And that was one thing that was very, um, very uh, impactful to me. A second thing, you know, um, of course, Deus Caritas asked, uh, I mean, Deus um, you know, Caritas asked, I mean, the idea, you know, that the principle of all principles is that God is love and everything extends from that and that in his fantastic systematic mind, he is just laying out one principle following upon another based on the one sole um, you know, statement from the first letter of John, God is love. And, and so uh, we see that uh, um, uh, laid out so beautifully, systematically uh, by Benedict. And I mm -hmm. just, you know, if you want a statement of the truth, not only of the Catholic faith, but of the Christian faith. There it is. Uh, you know, read that encyclical. It's a beauty. And then, as I said, Caritas and Veritate. You want to put together, you know, the, uh, the, um, the, the, you know, the, the social agenda that has to accompany, right? How are we going to get through these problems of globalization? How are we going to get through these incredible problems of, of inequities between the poor and the rich? How are we going to, you know, you know, get to the UN Millennial Goals to overcome poverty and, and you know, terrible water problems and so forth th throughout the, the universe. And here he is just balancing right. this uh, very practical set of problems with these beautiful truths that are extending uh, almost, you know, theoretically and through the heart, the spiritual heart of, of this man. And he's got all three of these things in this incredible balance in this uh, wonderful, wonderful um, encyclical letter, you put that stuff together and it's going to have an influence on anyone Absolutely. who reads it uh, with half a mind to be open. Very so, good. Um, anyway, well said yeah. and well put yeah. and thank you for those insights on the Pope Emeritus and we're going to take a break with you, Father Spitzer, so rest up and we're going to join him again in a few minutes uh, taking your questions and getting on to the topic. Uh, this is Father Spitzer's Universe. Stay with us. Appreciate you staying with us here in Father Spencer's Universe here in the new year. 
You know, the inside story of Pope Benedict's pontificate is available in a book, Benedict Up Close by Paul Body, a great friend of ours in the networks you know, from Germany. It's published by EW10 Publishing. It's a wonderful book. You want to find out more about Pope Benedict, uh, check out that book, again, available through the EW10 Religious Catalog. And, of course, our topic, Envy, from Father's book, Christ vs. Satan in Our Daily Lives. But before we get to that, because we kind of had a special section, Father, getting a chance to have you reflect on Pope Benedict uh, in sure. his passing uh, to get to some questions now, so uh, which are sure. totally unrelated. These are related to different topics okay. we dealt with uh, earlier last year. So, dear Father Spitzer, it seems like it would be difficult to commit a mortal sin if all three conditions must be met, grave matter, sufficient reflection, and full consent of the will. Most people act without sufficient reflection or possibly full consent. Rather, they act out of habit, as in this way they have always done things. Or this is what family or society expects. Does this excuse their sin? Patrick. Well, here's the, um, uh, the point. I mean, in a way, if you don't meet all three conditions, it is not a mortal sin. So in that sense, it wouldn't excuse the sin. Mm. It just wouldn't be one. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just wouldn't have done it that way. Um, yes, St. Thomas Aquinas did think that habit was an impediment to the free use of the will. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, he, uh, you know, in the same breath, of course, the church says that, you know, you have to have full consent of the will, which means that you basically don't have any serious impediment to the free use of the will. Mm -hmm. Now, where the controversy sort of comes in is, you know, you don't want to be trying to finagle this too much <laughs> because of, uh, it's true, right. uh, you, 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 you have to meet those conditions in order to commit a moral sin, but at the very same moment, you have to be careful because you could use that as a ground for rationalization. Mm -hmm. In other words, you could just say, ah, you know, this is probably a habit, so, uh, you know, I've got an impediment to the free use of the will, so mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about this, so I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. And that kind of thinking is a bad form of thinking. Your best form of thinking is uh, maybe, you know, I have an impediment to the free use of the will. It could come from, you know, a psychological impediment, a habitual impediment, et cetera, et cetera. Those things could validly be there. But, you know, if you keep thinking along the lines of, well, you know, uh, because it may be an impediment to the free use of the will, I'll go ahead and do it anyway you are just asking for trouble mm -hmm. because what that's going to do is interrupt the process of any form of moral conversion. You have to have the opposite. If you're really thinking it may be an impediment to the free use of the will, but it may also not be an impediment to the free use of the will. Therefore, I should try to do everything right. not to do this grave matter. And if I fall into it when I'm trying not to do it, that's the attitude that you want to have. Okay, maybe I was impeded. Maybe there was something there psychologically. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was something there, some form of coercion. Uh, it could be by your kids, it could be by your, you know, and coercion doesn't have to be a gun to that. Coercion can be, you know, mom, I won't talk to you anymore if you don't do this or something. You go, ah, 
you know, and so forth. And so you react uh, foolishly uh, to, to such things. But the, the point is, um, yes, that could be an impediment. But just remember, don't keep thinking mm -hmm. there could be an impediment here. Therefore, I should go ahead and do it. Right. You're, uh, you should say there, there, there may not be an impediment here. Therefore, I should try in every possible way not to do this. And so, of course, if right. you feel so constrained, you know, then of course, there, you know, the church accounts and, for it. Yeah, and, you and really. At the, and at the end impeded. of the day, mm -hmm. the priest may not be able to read your mind, but our Lord knows what you're actually thinking in your head. Yep. And that's what you're going to have to explain, not uh, yep. you know how you uh, con that's somebody right. else. Yeah. And the other thing, as you said, with so much yep. is it's one thing to be realize I have a problem and I'm striving to overcome it, and there are times I fail yep. and I need to pick myself up and try yeah. and do the right thing. So it doesn't become, yeah. well, this, like you said, well, this is a bad habit, and it's a bad habit, so I guess it's okay for me to do it because it's just a habit I can't break. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. And so, also, you know, that's why we have the Sacrament of Reconciliation, right, too. Right. You know, when in doubt, I always say, just confess it. Right. Um, you know, don't say, oh, I probably wasn't a moral sinner, therefore I don't have to confess it. Just confess it. I mean, how much trouble could that be even, you know, you could even tell your confessor, well, you know, I've been doing this for years, or I feel this compulsion mm -hmm. or this uh, coercion of one kind or another. You can tell your confessor that, mm -hmm. but the main thing is, you know, at the same time, just confess it. Right. And uh, that's the best way to, to deal with it, uh, rather than sort of musing it, the rationalization, there might be an impediment here. And um, so... Uh, uh, that, that's kind of dangerous thinking. Right. Well, speaking of confession, dear Father Spitzer, I attended an Advent penance service and confession in Phoenix. There was a long line for individual confessions. Mm -hmm. The priest did not speak English very well, but gave me absolution. He did not ask me for my act of contrition and said it was my penance. Was I forgiven of my sins? Bill. Bill, you were forgiven from your sins. If you got absolution from the priest, and he didn't give you a penance or said that the act of contrition was your penance or was under some mm -hmm. misunderstanding about what you were asking. I mean, the point is you completed all that was required for you to have received faithfully that absolution. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that you have to do now is just to have, uh, you know, some kind of firm purpose of amendment. Mm -hmm. And that's it. You know, you're, you're forgiven, absolutely. So don't second guess yourself. And don't think that, you know, you're going to be held responsible for something that a priest has omitted in the regular formula. Mm -hmm. You are not responsible. You, okay. Once you've got the absolution, you have the absolution. And if you tried to fulfill whatever he asked, you are forgiven. Okay, very good. Uh, another question. Dear Father Spitzer, last month the gospel reading from Matthew 11 showed John the Baptist questioning if Jesus was the Messiah. At the baptism of Jesus described uh -huh. in Matthew 3, John positively stated Jesus was the Messiah. What could have caused John to doubt? Did he expect Jesus to arrive with an army like many of the Jews, or was he tested by his experience in prison? Cassie. Well, Nancy, I'd, I'd say two things. Uh, the first thing is, is uh, by the way, this has been a, a subject of a lot of theological mm -hmm. speculation, but here's my speculation amidst many others who have other uh, speculations. Uh, number one, I do think um, that John the Baptist had a, a view of messiahship 
that was different from the one that Jesus uh, was preaching. So even though Jesus was using some of the Isaiah prophecies, you know, about, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, what the Messiah would be like and interpreting him in the direction of God's love coming into the world to forgive the world, right, and, and uh, not to condemn the world, etc. Mm -hmm. Even though uh, Jesus was saying these things, putting it into a, an Isaiah context, John was used to a very different prophetic tradition. And the prophetic tradition had two things in it that Jesus didn't seem to be doing. Mm -hmm. The first thing um, that John thought of was, well, when's the new Jerusalem coming, right? In other words, a new Jerusalem on this earth. And Jesus is talking about his kingdom not being of this world. And so that kind of mm -hmm. left him in a, in a bit of a, you know, a confusion, I think. Uh, you know, because uh, uh, he's, he's sort of avoiding something that John expected. The second thing, uh, definitely, uh, no, um, I don't think uh, the Herod uh, prison thing was a problem mm -hmm. uh, for John, by the way, to answer your question directly. I think John expected fully that Herod would be unjust and wicked. So I don't think that mm -hmm. was um, uh, testing him in the least. I do think, though, that John had other views of messiahship, particularly that along with the New Jerusalem may come the power parousia and the imminence of the parousia and, and of course with that of course the Romans would be kicked out and all mm -hmm. kinds of things would happen I don't think John saw this even on the horizon so he began to think wow you know could I have been mistaken so Jesus answers John's question though in a very um, new uh, a very Old Testament way you tell him that the blind see, that the lame walking, and what he's course, quoting Isaiah's prophecy. And of, of course, when he does this, uh, you know, he's, he's saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And, uh, you know, uh, it's very true that Jesus was doing these miracles and that um, uh, these miracles definitely were the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. And so it signaled to John, you're absolutely right. You saw the Spirit come down upon me, and definitely uh, that uh, was not just some vision, um, you know, that you thought you might be having. It was the real thing. And, uh, the, um, and you were right in identifying me as the one who was to come and I am he. And the signs that I do, the works that I do, are the indication that it is, uh, you know, I, I am not only the Messiah, I have the power of God within me. And if I have the power of God within me, then I do have, you know, that claim mm -hmm. uh, to know the Father as the Father knows me, which is to say that I'm the Son of God. So he's, he's answering it all in one big fell swoop. But yeah, I think John actually okay. had a different view of Messiahship. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesus cured that in, uh, in one Isaiah quote, basically. Right, very good. Uh, let's uh, move on to the book, uh, since we've got about 12 minutes or so left. And one thing uh, <laughs> okay. in, in talking about the, the, the Deadly Sins Part 2 on page uh, 321 is where uh -huh. we ended off. Before I got there, I just wanted to go back to the uh, uh, Pope Benedict. Uh, there was a story that said retired Pope Benedict XVI's longtime personal secretary has given an interview in which he says he believes that the devil was working against, against Benedict throughout his papacy. He says 
It's obvious, as Pope Francis would say, that the bad guy, the evil one, the devil, doesn't sleep. He goes on to say, it's clear he always tries to touch, to hit where the nerves are exposed to do the most damage. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, uh, Pope Benedict, like everybody else, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're expected to sort of marshal our resources toward God even when uh, the evil spirit is uh, doing his thing. But God doesn't let the evil spirit uh, be uh, victorious or dominant, right? So even in the case of, um, you know, John Vianney, for example, where the devil's just blasting his bed, going up and down and disturbing him all night long, you know, John Vianney would just pray to God, well, please, you know, if I don't get any sleep tonight, Lord, don't let it affect me tomorrow for my confessions. You know, that's the proper thing, is not to let the, the evil spirit get to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, But it, it is relentless, and it can be very trying. And, you know, I mean, he is, the, the number of tricks that the evil spirit uses, I mean, these are deadly tricks, right? Mm -hmm. So he starts off with some temptations toward greed or lust or power, whatever he wants to do. Then he, uh, then as if, you know, he's going to just give up on that, he switches over and gives you all kinds of just, terribly arrogant uh, sense, you know, super sensitivity to every statement that everybody's making. And, mm -hmm. and then the next thing he tries to do is disturb you in your dreams. And the next thing that he tries to do is, you know, every time you, uh, let's say, try to do a broadcast, uh, he starts putting static in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first started talking about you know, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives, I started talking about that book. It was amazing mm -hmm. how many of my interviews were filled with static or uh, and, and mm -hmm. a couple of times in the the Catholic Information Center was doing one. I mean, everything just started cutting off one mm -hmm. thing after the next after the next as I was talking about this book. Poor Teresa Tommy is going, I've never heard so much static in, <laughs> uh, on a line in my life. I said, well, Teresa, uh, you know, it's I haven't heard this much static, <laughs> but I, I think it's the topic we're dealing right, with. Right. Uh, somebody obviously doesn't want us to hear it and so uh, doesn't want our audience to hear it. So, I mean, you know, it's just pretty clear that these things are, you know, going on, and we, our job is just to, you know, put our heads down and move forward and do what we right. were going to do, ask the Lord not to let us get too tired, too weary, uh, to just hang in there, you know, mm -hmm. to be strong in the face of temptations and strong in the face of, you know, the temptation, especially towards self-pity and arrogance and strong in the face of, of uh, you know, real, you know, obstacles that he mm -hmm. puts in our ways, you know, where sometimes some guy comes out of the blue and decides to bust your chops and you go, what the, what in the world, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I mean, I, I have expected it from anybody, but why this guy, yeah. you know, and so you just, uh, you know, you're getting it constantly, but at the end of the day, hang with it and the Holy Spirit will open up doors mm -hmm. of opportunity. If you just keep, you know, slogging on, mm -hmm. just like those early Christians did in the catacombs, you keep slogging on and the church is going to multiply. You keep slogging on and the Spirit is going to move people in their hearts to follow what you're saying, even in the midst of, you know, you've got to struggle with all your might not to turn into an arrogant rat. So the point, of course, is, mm -hmm. um, you know, God will help, and he does help, and he opens doors and opportunities in ways that we, we just can't even anticipate. It's the most remarkable thing ever. So uh, in any case, uh, I, I guess I would just leave it at that and okay. say, uh, um, you know, we, what can we do?
right. uh, were expected, uh, you know, and, and I, Pope Benedict, I, I'm sure he was so effective that I'm sure he, he was getting his chops busted, <laughs> you know, on, an, on, on a minute-by-minute minute basis. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's right. Uh, the uh, book we were talking about was uh, having to do with envy. And we kind of talked a little bit about Othello, and then obviously you brought up uh, Brutus uh, from uh, Julius Caesar as well. And, and so uh, yeah, we, we kind of got through that. So I wanted to see if we could at least kick off talking about pride. Uh, sure. You talk about pride in the most general sense refers to egocentricity that leads not only to self-absorption, but to exclusion, neglect, and even derision of others. Uh, and then you talk about the explanation mm -hmm. of pride and its five stages of destruction. What are the five stages of destruction? Well, well yeah, let me uh, just back up for a second. Sure. I, I, I have eight deadly sins. Okay. And the only reason I have eight deadly sins is because I separate vanity from pride. Vanity is where you really want to call attention to yourself. Look at me. I'm so great. Admire me. That's vanity. Mm -hmm. Pride has a, that element of vanity in it, and that a lot of the church fathers combine vanity mm -hmm. with pride, because uh, it does have you know the vain, admirable you know person. But pride goes you know down the path much further. It's not just I want to be admired or loved or respected. It's also ultimately I want to have control over you. Mm -hmm. So my, you know it goes to that next move but it goes to a middle stage where it is you're a loser and so I have to take control over you mm -hmm. in order to kind of redeem your loserliness. So in other words there's constantly mm -hmm. the up, upgrading of the quest for power. I want control over you and I can control you by derision. I can control you by talking about your inferiority by comparison to me. I can control you with contempt. I can control you. But those are just, those are like what I call the minimum controls, right? Mm -hmm. Those are where I, I you know, I, I'm taking, as it were, lordship over you, uh, you know, and, and manipulating you, uh, uh, you know, so oftentimes against your will and, uh, you know, just taking away your freedom. But then you go to the next uh, stage, and it's not just taking control over a person, you know, uh, through contempt or derision. It's now taking control uh, over them uh, by basically undercutting other means of control that they have, and slowly but surely, the control urge expands. It's not, I just don't want control over, you know, the people around me or the employees around me. I want more control over more people, you know, and so you kind of, maybe you pursue a political, I'm not saying that, that uh, politicians are proud or anything of that nature, but the lust for power is there. And uh, not only lust for power, but also uh, the lust not only to control as many lives uh, to the extent that I can, and then to recreate the world according to of not what the creator wanted, mm -hmm. but according to what Spitzer wants. And so, of course, uh, 
you know, this is the Hitlerian urge, mm -hmm. right, to, uh, uh, well, we got to get rid of these inferior races. And mm -hmm. if I were in control, I'd just kill all those inferior races. And uh, I'd kill also the inferior people, you know. They have a little bit of a mental difficulty or physical difficulty. Up, uh, club foot, you have to get rid of them. Uh, we're going to try and purify uh, right. the gene pool and so forth and so on. Well, gosh, that's like, whoa, creator, master race, uh, messiah kind of control. And of course, it finally winds up mm. that it's not just I want to create, the, recreate the world. I am the redeem. I'm the new Messiah. I mean, let's face it: mm. the Hitlers and Stalins of this world are not just you know they're messianic, mm. right? They've crossed over the line. They think they're in the divine. Uh, not just the divine image, they are uh, the divinity, that the divinity is, as it were, acting and inhering through them. <laughs> you, know, to, you, know, the, uh, you know, the Ubergeist, you know, of Hegel, you know, the, that, that's, you know, kind of crossing the threshold into the world, marching over the dead bodies in the battlefield, right? It's this powerful, uh, you know, super spirit that's, uh, that's uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the foundation, not just of the Hitlers and the Stalins, but even of the supposed, you know, absolutist monarchs and mm -hmm. people of that nature. And it just doesn't have to be political people or, you know, people who are involved in these power politics. It can also uh, certainly be the Gordon Geckos of the corporate mm -hmm. world. Uh, that was an image from Wall Street right. and a few, uh, you know, a few other uh, types as as well, but you know, power is so seductive. Mm -hmm. It's it's you know, control is so seductive that uh, ultimately you just want to be creator. You just want to be Messiah. You just want to be the new redeemer. You are just God. And so the minute you know that happens, and you got that urge in you, you know that the darkness has overcome you. And that uh, if you really start believing yourself to be, as Hitler did, right. a kind of a, a divine incarnation of, of God himself, you right. know, uh, uh, to purify, you know, the race and, you know, the German Geist-like, you know, right. uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, image. Right. I, I would have to say that at that point you're so dark. I don't know if you, you know, well, Jesus says you can always get back into the light, but wow, how do you turn around from that right. and, um, you know, come back to reality? The evil spirit is in you so deeply, so powerfully. Uh, I, I don't know if there can be any turning well, it's around interesting I think, too, at that be, point. Because as you point yeah. out, it's not just uh, going back to the Nazis or you got Machiavelli in here or you have Stalin and, you yeah. know, with, with the racial yeah. uh, situation, but then you've got, you know, boarding uh, children who... Uh, you know, have some alleged defect or something. In Iceland, we don't have anybody, oh, yeah. you know, uh, who's being yeah. born anymore who has a quote-unquote defect. Uh, and you yeah. also have, even recently, there was an article that came out and uh, with a straight face talking about the fact that it would be better for the climate for us to have more shorter people. We have to have shorter people to help the climate out because they have less impact on the climate. So we have to start mating tall people with short people so we can make the race shorter. Not only do we need fewer of them, but they have to be smaller. I mean, it, it is just such a classic uh, misallocation uh, of uh, mental energy and resources. Uh, I mean, you know, human technologies have always prevented the Malthusian myth 
from occurring. Uh, remember Thomas Malthus, right, who uh, you know, was actually an Anglican clergyman and economist who basically said that you know, resources will only multiply arithmetically, right. but of course needs and wants of an increasing population are going to increase exponentially or geometrically. So he basically said, well, if that's the case, then it's all going to be about right. strife. We got to get rid of some people. Well, we yeah. need a little eugenics here, and we need a little uh, not just population he was, control. He was using the new math, and that never works out very well. So unfortunately, yeah. he was chunking <laughs> instead of being specific. So if you will, uh, talking about that, we're just out of time. So if you'd give us your blessing on the way out okay. the door, maybe in honor of Pope Benedict Emeritus as well. Absolutely. And please bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may that good spirit of Pope Benedict, the spirit of generosity and brilliance, the spirit of faith and the morally good, the spirit of love combined with truth, be upon you through the Holy Spirit and in so doing guide you, help you, protect you, inspire you so that you might lead others into the same goodness and love that Benedict aspired to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week. And don't forget, Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are naturally available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, always there, EWTNRC.com. And of course, next week, we actually have a special mailbag show where Father will be answering your questions. So check that out, spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com for future questions and EWTN's bookmark. Uh, it's Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith by our friend Joe Pierce. It's a re-air in honor of the Pope. And we've got the solemn funeral mass for Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, Thursday, 2.30 a.m. Eastern, encores at 2.30 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern on EWTN. Coverage by Catherine Hadro, Matthew Bunsen, Father Raymond D'Souza, and Father Roger Landry. Also check out the EWTN website for all of our other special programming commemorating the life and legacy of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Just go to EW10.com, click on TV for shows and times in your area. We appreciate you joining us here on EW10 and Father Spitzer's Universe. We'll see you next week. Thanks. <music>